Well, good morning, Branch Church. It's a blessing to be with you all this morning and all of our church family online. Good morning to you. Glad you're joining with us. So you've decided to go to the movies, you and your spouse. If you're single, you're going on a date. Someone of the opposite sex, it's going to be a great night. So you go to the movies, but you get there a little late. You get in the theater, and you're trying to find a seat. So you look up, and you finally spot two empty seats, but they're right in the middle where nobody wants to sit. And so you, you make the trek up there, and then you come to the time where now you have to squeeze past. Do you squeeze facing them face to face, or do you turn your back and go in this way? Let's take a survey. How many of you, how many of you would go face to face? How many of you would turn your back? <laughs> I think in American culture, our conduct, it's not the end-all be-all, and you can kind of choose what you want, although our American culture, I think, just totally made the decision right here, we would turn our backs. <laughs> However, if you were in Russia and you turned your back and did that, that would be considered rude. They want to see your face, you need to go face-to-face. -face. Okay, dinner's over. I'm sorry, movie's over, now you're going out for dinner. And you park your car and you walk up to the front door. Who gets to go in first, the man or the woman? So in American culture, generally, the woman goes in first. And it's the same thing in Italy, except when you go to a restaurant in Italy, it changes. The man goes in first, presumably so he can go talk to the hostess and he can reserve a table and do all those things. Okay, you're sitting down and you order pizza and you feel like something's missing. Parmesan. You feel, I just need a lot of Parmesan. So you ask the waiter to come over and just to, to dump it on there. In America, totally fine. As much Parmesan as you want. But in Italy, Parmesan is considered incompatible with pizza. <laughs> to do that would be downright rude to ask them to do that. All right, now it's time to eat your pizza. Are you going to eat it with your hands? Or are you going to eat it with your fork and your knife or some other utensil? Ameri Again, in America, you can do whatever you want, although most people usually eat it with their hands. However, if you were in Chile, it would be considered inappropriate etiquette to eat it with your hands. You're expected to do it with your fork and your knife. You go home, you feel like you need a good cup of coffee just to relax, and so you ask one of the elders in your home to get you a cup, and they do, and they bring you a cup of coffee. How do you receive the cup of coffee? Again, in America, you kind of do whatever you want. You can do both hands, one hand, around the back. It really doesn't matter. But if you're in Korea, it's proper to receive it with two hands to turn away and take your first sip out of respect for your elder. It's interesting as you travel around the world, different places require different conduct or different etiquette. And it's the same thing within God's church. God has given us his heart for how he desires us to live to worship him and to function. And this is a major part of why uh, Paul is writing to 1 Timothy in Timothy is to explain the conduct that he desires us to live as the church. And, and as he goes through 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, he's going to give us the conduct in regards to leadership, particularly overseers and deacons are what we're going to call servants. So if you have your Bible, turn with me please to 1 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, This is a faithful saying. What I'm about to tell you is trustworthy. You can receive it immediately, and in the old adage, you can take it to the bank. What is it that Timothy can take to the bank? If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. 
If a man desires, the word desire is this idea of somebody stretching for something. They're extending themselves because they aspire to this and they want this. What position are they aspiring to? Here's the word bishop. I'm going to walk you through the Greek word because I think it'll be helpful. So the Greek word is the word episkopos. When you hear episkopos, what denomination do you think of? You're so smart. Episcopalian. Why? Because they center their church or they structure it around the bishop or the overseer. I'm going to translate it as overseer for you this morning for two reasons. One is I think it avoids kind of the historical baggage that you might feel with the word bishop with other denominations. And secondly, the word overseer gives the picture of what he's doing. He is overseeing the whole church or governing and leading the church as a whole. If anyone desires to this, he desires a good work. It's not only okay to want to be in this position, it's a good thing to desire to go be a part of it. Now, contextually, there were some false teachers in the church, and there's a good chance that they were acting or teaching in such a way that they were bringing this position into a bad reputation where people didn't want to do it. I, I don't know about that because of what you're saying, what you're doing. It, it reminds me of, unfortunately, what's happened to the police officer position the last few years with all the unfortunate political backlash to fund the police and this and that. And, and almost all police officers can feel like they're villainized because of the poor actions of a few. Really sad. But can you imagine if someone stood up and said, someone high in our land, high in the office, and they said, hey, this is a trustworthy saying. If you want to be a police officer, this is a noble thing, a great thing. Go get it. Go do it. The people would be like, yes, we feel more inspired now to go after and to seek that position. That seems to be what's happening here in the church of Ephesus as Paul is writing to Timothy. This is a good thing, and it's okay to want to go after it. In verses two through seven now, he's going to describe the qualifications, or as Bill Mount says, the types of people that fit this position, the types of people the church should be looking for to actually do this. Verse two, an overseer then must be blameless. An overseer is not someone who is perfect. They are not devoid of every single public or private sin possible, but they are living life in such a way that they are not open to constant attack or criticism. They're living a blameless type of life. There's a good chance that blameless here is the umbrella. And then all these other terms underneath are going to fit underneath that and describe what a blameless overseer actually looks like. So let's unpack it a little further. An overseer next is the husband of one wife. He's a one woman guy. One wife he is faithful to her in all ways. Now, I don't know if these are in a certain order, but I can't help but think. He started with potentially the umbrella term and went right for the marriage relationship. How significant is that to this person's ability to actually be able to be in leadership and to help govern and oversee the whole church? We want to know what's going on at home with his wife. Is he faithful? Has he been faithful? There's the old, if you really want to know about a guy, ask his wife. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> no, it's just, it's funny. He's the husband of one wife. He's temperate. Temperate is the idea of restraining your conduct. This is someone who doesn't lash out rashly. They're able to take their emotions and their flesh and, and to keep it under control. 
there's a good chance that in life you have your buttons pushed. Amen? If you're married, you have your buttons pushed. If you have kids, you have your buttons pushed. If you are a leader in any form, you'll probably have your buttons pushed. You'll have your thoughts challenged. You might have your motives questioned, whatever it may be. Is the man who fulfills this position able to handle it in such a way where he's able to not lose his mind, lose, lose his temper? He needs to be level-headed. He needs to be able to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. He's become really good at controlling his emotions, looking to Christ, and to walking with him in his time of need. An overseer also is sober-minded. Sober-minded speaks of being self-controlled to the point where you can work your way to make good decisions. So an overseer is sensible. They're level-headed. They're able to work their way through to make good judgments. You might not always know the answer. Sometimes it can feel black, uh, a little more gray than black or white. So how am I actually going to do this? They need to be able to restrain themselves in such a way, have control, where they don't just run too far ahead, but take good steps one after the other and trying to make decisions and handling people's lives. People's lives might not always be so easy or cut and dry, and so we want to be careful and walk with them in the most loving way possible. An overseer must be of good, re- good behavior. Good behavior speaks of him ordering his life in such a way where it actually evokes admiration from other people. Because the way you order your outside life is a really good indicator of how you're ordering your inward life or what's going on in here. People look and they go, I respect him. I think he's honorable in the way that he's living. I don't think we intend to do it, but when it comes to leaders in the world, we, we want to watch. We want to see what they do, what they might say next. How do they live their relationships? What do they do with their kids? We kind of call it that fishbowl effect where we're all watching the fish in the fish tank except for the leader, it can be his family as well. Again, I don't think we necessarily intend to. It's just kind of natural. We all kind of are just curious. And so for someone to step in this kind of position and overseeing the church, people will look, they will watch, they will wonder how you do things, how you make your decisions, how you're raising your kids and and things like that. And so the man who steps into this position needs to be one that is respectable in his behavior before he even enters into it. Someone who we look at him and he orders his life really well, we can trust that when he gets in here, he will continue to swim in that tank just as we saw him swim in this pond or whatever over here. An overseer must be hospitable. This is someone who is kind and cordial to strangers. The word literally means to love strangers. I heard of an overseer recently who was meeting with someone and then after the meeting noticed someone at the Starbucks and the gentleman was young and his shoes were just ripped to shreds. The back of his heels looked like the, they were alligator talking to you as you walked by. The bottoms were just completely off and looked like he was pretty much walking barefoot. And so the overseer walked over and said, hey, how's it going? Basically, I'd love to give you my shoes. You want to do a trade? What size shoe do you wear? And was looking to connect and love on the stranger he had never known. Surprisingly, the, the homeless man who was in his 30s said no. But he was really blessed that he talked to him and noticed him. He said, I got so used to people just not talking to me, I was really surprised that someone stopped and talked. So we'd love to see that in the overseer, someone who sees the stranger and notices them. An overseer also is able to teach. The word is skillful in teaching. If you go to 1 Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it also gives a similar list here. 
And in that list, it expounds upon it, kind of what teaching looks like, teaching in sound doctrine and refuting heresy, refuting those who would oppose sound doctrine. The overseer not only governs the church, he also stands out in that he is instructing the church with the true doctrine of scripture, the whole church as a whole. What is it that he really needs to know? I mean, it's hard, right? We all might have different starting points, but I try to think of what's the, like the most basic thing, the most basic truths we want to see that you can know and be able to explain to other people. At the very least, I would love to see this in the overseer, that they can explain the triune God and the work that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Can you explain to me God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Can you explain to me who Jesus is? Fully God, fully man. The work he has done on our behalf on the cross, the gospel, can you explain it? Can you tell me what the response is to the gospel? What are we supposed to do with it now? What does God call us to do? And then can you explain that sanctified life? What does it now look like to walk in the gospel? I think those are very basic and good things that we want to be able to know that our leaders can know and they can communicate to the whole church, uh, particularly to any age that might ask them for help. Verse three, the overseer also is not given to wine. He is not addicted to much wine or drunkenness. Now, can he have wine? Yes. I don't see anything in scripture that forbids from drinking alcohol, but it does forbid being controlled by it. Depending on the denomination you go to, this will be different with leadership. I'm pretty sure in the Calvary Chapel, they, they ask the leaders not to do it um, out of just respect to lead and so nobody might stumble in watching them. I know on a Presbyterian side, at least some, they'll highly encourage, strongly encourage, I read it, strongly encourage you to take wine during communion. They'll have wine and juice and they want you to take the wine. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Just, just so different. But for the overseer, can you do it? Yes. But he also obviously must be very wise in how he approaches it and uses it in his own life, particular with other people watching. Uh, the overseer is not violent. He is not someone who is prone to fight or combative. The word also designates a bully. This is not someone who is going in and just, I'm going to make it happen and force it my way because I'm in charge and this is the way it's supposed to be. It's not how it works. As an overseer, you do have a measure of authority, but it's not about getting your way or making things happen just the way that you want. Rather, it says this. It says, but gentle. Gentle describes someone who is yielding, who is yielding to others. They operate in the authority, but they don't use it to get everything they want. They yield to other things because what's more important is that people walk with Christ, make decisions for themselves, grow and bear fruit. You will not always get what you want as a leader, but that's not what it's about. It's about other people growing in the way that Christ desires them to grow. The overseer is gentle. He's not quarrelsome. The word is peaceable there. It's better translated peaceable. As a leader, you'll have people who won't always get along, maybe groups that don't get along. The overseer is a peacemaker. And the goal is to bring reconciliation to people, to those groups. And, and that's the, the heart and the first thing that they want to do with people when they're going and struggling in these kind of instances. The overseer is not covetous. They're not controlled by money or the greed for it, but by the desire to serve Jesus and the flock and take care of them. 
Verse four, he's one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? An overseer manages his home. Leadership starts in the home. If you can't take care of your wife, if you can't take care of your kids, can we really trust you to take care of the other families that come together and comprise the bigger family in the church? What is he getting at? Leadership at home. We want to see how do you lead at home? How is your family doing? What's going on there? We want to know that so we can trust you with the greater family of God. Particularly the leading here at home, he talks about his children being in submission. And the idea is that the kids are not in control. They're not running the house. I was going to tell you an illustration from one of those nanny 911 shows. You've probably seen them. And I watched a clip and I honestly was so disturbed by it that I don't even want to share with you what I saw. I felt so bad for the kids that the fact, honestly, that they were even on TV being shown this, I was just like, just don't. But hopefully you get the concept, right? Kids that are just ruling the house, telling mom and dad what to do. That can't be the case. You're not in charge, kids. Kind of rule number one or 1B in life. You're not in control. You're not in charge. Mom and dad are. And you need to learn to submit and obey. Again, not in an inappropriate way, but in a fitting, appropriate way in which he leads them to submit, ultimately to submit unto Christ himself. Verse six, this person is not a novice. He's not a newbie. Novice is a a small plant. Think of a small plant you just put in the ground. He's not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. A leader needs time to grow roots deep into the earth or into Christ. He needs time to grow up strong that he can handle the weather and the seasonal changes. He needs time to bear fruit and that we can see the fruit happen season after season. Even if it's a dry year or a wet year, we know fruit's coming because we've seen it. We've been watching this person for some time. We know that it's there. Humility is essential to a leader, to an overseer. I can't can't remember. It was either Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon said, three things make a good minister. Much study, would you agree? Much prayer, would you agree? Much suffering. I was like, yikes. I did school. I I tried to pray. I don't know about that third one. Because suffering, pain is incredible at humbling people. You realize you're not as great as you thought. You're not better than other people. And you're not invincible. Those are great things to learn. It's Christ church. I love bodybuilding. You probably can't tell. (laughs) But I enjoy it. And I would love to be buff like those guys. I just, I just like it. Okay, and we'll just leave it at that. Probably never going to happen, but if I could, right, I'd be like the Hulk or something. I just, I just, I like strength, and, but I'm just not there. I was more of a fast guy, so it's all good. There's a guy, Ronnie Coleman. He's considered one of the greatest bodybuilders. He's like 5'11", 300 pounds. He's just so massive. He won eight straight Mr. Olympia titles. But do you know what happened to him years later? He's in the hospital. He lost all this weight and he's using a walker to get around. And I saw the picture and I was just so humbled. And I imagine he must have felt humbled too. Can you imagine being that strong, that well-known, that, that kind of acclamation as life and, and, he, and he can't even walk without needing help now. And it just humbles me. I feel like, man, at any moment, 
I could be in a wheelchair at any moment. I could not be here. At any moment, I could not have the ability to speak or use my voice. I think of someone like, was it Val Kilmer? Loses his voice after all these years. It's just like, it's so sad. And, and you think about life and age, and it's just, I get all sappy. And anyway, it's good to be humble and realize where, you, where you're able to stand and lead and teach is an absolute gift. To be a leader in people's lives is such a gift that I get to, to be with you and God has given me this heart where I'm falling in love with you and it's, it's, it's this weird, amazing, you're so wonderful and I appreciate you all and, and I'm so thankful to be able to stand here with you. Verse seven, moreover, he must have a good testimony or reputation among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Why does he need to have a good outside reputation? Because people will look at him as a leader and put his actions potentially on the whole church as a whole and put those together. We don't mean to do it, but we just kind of might naturally do it. For example, and I'm not picking on this place, it's just an example. A manager from Walmart. He's out in the world, he's wearing the vest, you know where he works, and he's just being a jerk to everybody. And you go, man, Walmart's just a bunch of jerks. Walmart's jerk city. They hire jerks and jerks. And it's like, you know it's not true, but you start to equate the two because of someone who is leading there. And so the same thing can happen with the church. And it seems to be happening in Ephesus at this time is that people are bringing the church into bad reputation. But we want leaders who stand up and who can not do that and lead people to see the church for the grace and the glory in which it is. And unfortunately, so many leaders... And, and, and people in the world haven't given the church the best reputation. But, you know, today as we end this, maybe, God willing, we can pray that that can change, not only for us, but for the churches around the world. God has given the church many gifts. Amen? Salvation. He's given us his spirit, his son, fellowship with him, peace, justification, sanctification, one day glorification, new bodies we will have. We have hope secured as an anchor in heaven. It's going nowhere. He's also given us the gift of leaders. And I kind of look at this leader, this blameless leader, and I try to put it into kind of three, three things I can see here that really stand out about, about this leader of the church. Number one, it's someone who has great self-control. They've learned to master themselves, their emotions, their temptations, their intimate feelings they feel inside. They've learned to put it in check and to say no to the flesh because I'm too busy walking in the spirit. Secondly, not only themselves, they've become a manager or leader in their home. They've stepped up to love their wife, to lead their children, and to be a part of their children's lives. I remember where I was, Lakeside Middle School, 2008 or 9, and there was a woman who she was also a Christian, and she said to me, Sean, marriage before ministry. Marriage before ministry. I think I heard it somewhere else, but for whatever reason, I remember her telling it to me. And it was so profound. She's absolutely right. The family has to come first. The overseer realizes that, number one, he's a Christian. That's the first hat. After that, right, he's a, he's a husband to his wife. He's a dad to his kids. And then that pastor hat, that elder hat, overseer hat, it's all synonymous terms here. Overseer, pastor, elder, it's all the same position here and how they're used in scripture. Marriage before ministry. It's really easy to leave the family behind. And it's really hard 
to give your full effort to the families of God and also your family. It can be very tiring. And I think that's true for any job, for any of you men, for any of you women who work. To give full time to your job and your family is hard. Can I get a witness? But we can't sacrifice our families for any job, whether it's the overseer or your job or whatever. We don't give any less at home. Don't give any less to your kids. My aunt, she told me something and I, I haven't forgot. She was a single mom at the time, two little kids, and she came home and she was so tired, just wanted to cry, just wanted to give up. And it was like, no, you just, you just keep giving the effort to your kids. You just keep pointing, you just keep being with them. And I think about that for myself. I don't want to have any regrets where I look back and I wish I could have had one more bath time, one more kiss goodnight. My kids constantly ask me, lay with me as they're going to bed, lay with me. We're working on that. But it's like, of course I'll lay with you. I'm tired too. Let's just, <laughs> but I don't want to lose that. And you know, they put their little arm around you and it's like, what else matters? This is the best. Let us as leaders and let us as church, whatever our stage in life, put our families first. I don't think it's a far stretch for me to tell you, and I'm sure you realize that the society is trying to break the family unit up. It's bad. It's really bad. Removing fathers or fathers not showing up at homes. Gender is one giant bowl of confusion. I mean, as a five-year-old, do you need to figure out if you're a boy or a girl? No, you're just trying to decide which nose you're going to pick out of. <laughs> That's about it. Oh, this one, this one, this one. The overseer, he's learned to control himself. He's learned to lead well at home. And he's learned to live his faith wherever he goes that the world sees him and goes, yeah, I may not like him. I may not agree. Yeah, he kind of annoys me, but you know what? I respect the guy. He's a good guy. He's full of integrity. He does what he says. This is fantastic. These are the type of men we are looking for to fulfill these positions within the church. Amen. So God has been gracious to give us not only overseers, but also deacons. Verse eight, likewise, deacons. It's the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. So the word actually, it states the office and describes the office all at the same time. Brilliant. Deacons or servants must be reverent. They must be worthy of respect. Again, this might be the umbrella term. And then everything else might explain what it looks like to be respectable here. They're not double-tongued. They don't say one thing over here and something different over here. There's integrity in their speech. They're not given to much wine. Not addicted to too much wine or, or controlled in a wrong way by it. They're not greedy for money, right? They're, they're led by the love of Christ, not, not money. Nine, they're, verse 9, they're holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. They live their faith wherever they're at. They believe it and they live it in their conscience. Verse 10, he says, but let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Before we allow people into significant places of service, we want to know, do they believe? We want to know, have we, can we see it? Can we see it in word and deed? Can multiple people see it? And when we do see it, we want to acknowledge that. Praise God, we see his work in your life. Maybe one of the most encouraging things you can tell somebody, I see Jesus in you. I see what Jesus has done for you. And you walk away going giddy. Yes, it's really happening. This is so great. I'm not the only one who sees it or feels it. Verse 11, he takes a little verse break here and he brings in the wives of the deacons. He says, likewise, their wives must be reverent, also worthy of respect, not slanderers. That is not defaming people with their speech, 
They must be temperate, right? Controlling themselves, not acting rashly in situations. Faithful in all things. Can you trust them to do something? I, I think about my keys, not in my pocket. If you ask me to use my keys for something, that's a hard thing for me because I got my house key, I got my car key, I got my work key, I got the bathroom key. And it's like, don't lose all that. Like, that's really going to mess up my day. It's not the end of the world. Can, can, you, can you hand someone your keys or your wallet? How about that? There's another level. Let's practice. Just kidding. Verse 12, let deacons be the husbands of one wife. Again, going at home, that they're marriage, they're being faithful, sexually faithful to their wives, ruling their children and their house as well. Again, just like the overseers, what's going on at home, we want to make sure they're taken care of. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves two things. Number one, a good standing. Likely the idea here is an influential standing among the church. And I think that's true. You serve well, people recognize, they notice, great job. There, there's a trust built up of this person. And secondly, they obtain for themselves a great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. For those who serve, there is a great boldness or courage, strength that shows up within you. I think I can testify to this in my own life. In serving Christ, you walk away fired up, more excited, because you've tasted and seen how good the Lord is. He's so good. I've seen him do things. I've seen him change me, and you can't help but want to just walk more in that. It is a great gift that God gives to those who serve even further boldness and courage as you serve him in the church. And I think wherever you're at, I think that this is true. You walk away from an encounter where you share the gospel. Are you excited? Are you pumped up? I am. I was at a wedding yesterday, wedding reception, and I got to speak with um, someone there and it was so, so great. I walked away so fired up and you know, this is why you study and you learn things because not everybody knows or they don't realize it. And so all the things you get from here and in your devotions, the studies you listen to, you step out in faith and begin to engage people, it's going to come to life in you. Amen? Verse 14, he says, these things I write to you. What things? Everything we just read. And I think this includes chapter two as well. These things I write, and here's why I think this. These things I write to you, though I am hoping to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Paul is writing these things to try to help the church in Ephesus, and I think the church at large, know how they ought to live and conduct themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. We are God's assembly. I like how Bill Mounts describes it. He bought it. He paid for it. He built it. He's in charge of it. He's going to rescue and take it home. This is God's place. And it's also called the pillar and the ground of truth. We stand on the truth of Christ and we uphold the truth of Christ to the world. Speaking of the gospel and truth, verse 16, he kind of breaks out here and shares it in a what seems to be like a hymn or song shortened version of it. He says, and without controversy, that is without doubt, no question, great is the mystery of godliness sublime, amazing. Do you ever stop and think about what you actually believe? I had a weird moment where I thought about color. Wow, I was just blown away that color existed. You ever have moments like that? Where did it come from? And like blue and green. and This is amazing color. How much more our faith, the basic things we believe about God, 
coming to the earth, dying for our sins, getting out of the grave. Who does that? Coming back to say, it's really amazing the things that we believe. Ephesians 1, for God, showing these pictures of his love and his blessing, it's, it's profound. I encourage you to really sit on your faith, the things you think, and just enjoy the beauty and the amazement and the wonder of it. Nothing fires me up more than the thoughts of God. Nothing changes me more than the thoughts of God. Nothing gives me more joy, hope, and peace than the thoughts of God. And we're going to finish this morning on this verse thinking about God. And then we are going to take communion and remember the ultimate act of sacrifice he has done for us. It says that God, which is better translated whom, it's actually a relative pronoun, whom. And I think that it's actually designating Jesus here. So Jesus, whom was manifested in the flesh. It's incredible what we believe that God came to earth and spoke to us. God didn't just give you a book and write it and say, don't do this, don't do that, here you go, figure it out. No, he actually showed up. And he showed up in a way where you could talk with him. He showed up in a story, in a way that you can get to know him. I heard about this, and I don't know if it's a Shakespeare play or just, you'll get the illustration though. There was a guy writing a book, and then the character started going haywire, and they're not listening to him, and they're not doing anything. And so he wrote himself into the story to be able to communicate with them and to rescue them from their rebellion. I know it's a terrible illustration, but you kind of get the idea. God wrote himself into the story in Jesus Christ to come and to speak to us. Jesus, remember, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It says that he was justified in the spirit. I think that this means he was vindicated in his resurrection. We talked about it on Resurrection Sunday. Go back and listen to it. We talked about the significance of the resurrection. What does it actually mean? And one of the things it means is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was vindicated. He was proved right. He was proved to be correct in everything he said and did. And I think that's the idea. He was justified, shown to be right as a spirit, and the Father raised him from the dead. He was seen by angels. This could be his resurrection. Who was the first person to actually preach? It was the angel. Jesus is not here. He has risen just as he said. This could also be the ascension. They were there. Why are you guys standing around? Let's go. He was preached among the Gentiles. We see it start in the book of Acts with Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, to the ends of the earth. He was believed on in the world, men, women, children, rich, poor, slave, free. We see people all over the social spectrum and age spectrum believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, and he was received up in glory, presumably being the ascension, where he is now at the right hand of the Father, ministering to us the mercy and grace we need, not only in salvation, but in our sanctification, and sustaining us until he returns to judge the earth and to rescue his people. Amen?